Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. How important is high strangeness in modern culture? What place does religion have in the paranormal? Do we really know what we think we know? Hello and welcome to the 989th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and that was Paul, and today we bring you a new guest on some deep subjects. Uh, to join in, you can give us a call from anywhere, 401-766-1240, that's uh, from anywhere, and you can also email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or contact us via Facebook. Coming to us from Texas via Skype today is Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, Associate Dean of the School of Humanities at Rice University. He holds the J. Newton Razor Chair of Philosophy and Religious Thought there, and he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years. Dr. Kripal helped create the Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism, or GEM program, a doctoral concentration at Rice that studies those three areas, the largest program of its kind in the world. His most recent book is The Superhumanities, Historical Precedents, Moral Objections, New Realities. He is the author of 11 other books, eight of which are published by the University of uh, Chicago Press. He has also served as the editor-in-chief of the Macmillan Handbook Series on Religion, that's 10 volumes, uh, Dr. Greipel specializes in the study of extreme religious states and the revisioning of a new comparativism, particularly as both involve putting the impossible back on the academic table again. In fact, in 2017, he co-authored a book with none other than, than uh, Whitley Strieber, The Supernatural, two words, Why the Unexplained is Real. Dr. Kripal is currently working on a three-volume study of paranormal currents in the history of religions and the sciences for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled The Super Story. His website, jeffreyjkripal.com, that's K-R-I-P-A-L. Dr. Kripal will join us as part of our panel on our 1,000th show, I guess that's what, 11 shows from now, a two-hour special on June 11th. So Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. Welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Well, hey, it's great, great to have you with us, and it's it's certainly going to be a cerebral show. We hope. Um, <laughs> now, now, all uh, all all jokes aside, um, what do you mean when we say um, when you when you say you want to put the impossible back on the academic table? And you know, as, as any good philosophical discussion requires, we must define our terms. So what do we mean by a new comparativism? Right. So this is why I refer to the paranormal as the impossible, is because it's impossible. Right. Um, what I, but what I mean philosophically is that what's impossible depends on the system or the assumptions that are being made. Mm. And, and in fact, a lot of the things that conventional intellectuals or scientists consider impossible are not impossible at all. They happen all the time. And that these violate the way we think the world works or the way, what we think a human being is. And so by putting the impossible back on the table again, I just mean stop doing that. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop assuming that you know what reality is and you know how it behaves and 
take people's experiences of things um, sympathetically and seriously, even when they violate, or especially when they violate, your assumptions about what's real. No, it's 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 true, and and it's funny. In in preparation for the show, I was reminded a lot of uh, Charles Taylor, with the the ideas of the two selves, right? So you have the porous self um, being, you know, the pre sort of the pre modern idea that there's really no boundary or no hard line between the self and and at what's outside. So then you can experience these realities. And, and not feel like, oh, well, I have to, I have to step back from all of it. Then you have sort of the, the hallmark of, of modern, you know, academia, if you will, which is the buffered self, right? So then you, you create this buffer in which we have complete control over the world around us. And, and a lot of these, these sort of impossible realities sort of constantly shake that, that foundation of, well, I have control over my own reality, right? You know, the whole Nietzschean concept of the Ubermensch. And in in effect, this whole idea of the 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 impossible being a reality kind of really really shatters that. Would you agree? Well, I would put Nietzsche aside, Ben. I mean, I think he's more complicated than than um, your comment suggested. There, I think I think he was very much into the impossible, actually. Mm. Um, but I would totally agree with your your basic your basic idea that. Um, the modern self is buffered, to use Taylor's language. And no, no radio host has ever quoted Charles Taylor, by the way. So good, <laughs> good I do my um, homework. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he writes big books, by the way. You know, these are huge books. And um, the, his, he's famous for this, this notion of porosity, that the modern self of the last 500 years has grown increasingly buffered and the ego has has gotten thick, as it were. But if you look at the the pre-modern self in Europe, or really anywhere in the world, it's much more porous to other realities and other other beings. And the reason that modern people don't believe in any of this anymore is they're so buffered. Mm. They're so freaking thick that nothing can get through. Well, okay. What are the super? Speaking of term, the superhumanities. And how do we decide which paranormal experiences are are in that context? So, one one works where one is, Paul. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. one doesn't work where one is not. And I happen to work in a university, and so I I work with with intellectuals and humanists and scientists really every day. And essentially, what they mean by the humanities is a kind of flat or horizontal notion that the human being is entirely defined by the physical body, the social self, politics, morality, history, these kinds of things. And what I mean by the superhumanities is that if you actually look at the the people that we read still and revere, their their key ideas were, were originated in altered states of consciousness that were not strictly human. They came from the outside in some extraordinary way. Uh, and by the way, Nietzsche is a perfect example of that. His notion of the Ubermensch is is really uh, uh, something that came to him in a revelation um, on a mountain, t- of all things, which he, he described in great detail. So, That's a really good point. Yeah. By, by the superhumanities, I simply mean, I mean the humanities. I mean all the, the critical theories that the humanities involve, but I also mean these altered states that produce these fundamental ideas that are still so very important uh, to us. 
Okay. Hmm. At this point, why don't we take a, a question? This is from Phil in Savannah, Georgia. Ben, if you be so kind. Sure thing. And uh, Phil writes to us. Uh, Dr. Kripal, my sense of the paranormal is, quote, uh, the more we know, the more we don't know. Uh, is it possible that our species is just not evolved enough to understand the origin or purpose of paranormal events? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so, yes, of course it's possible. However, these things happen. I suspect they happen for a reason. I suspect strongly they're trying to communicate with us. And that if we can read their signs, we can participate in what they're trying to say. So I absolutely think that human beings generally are not capable of reading these signs or understanding these events. But I think that's exactly what we're being called to do. If we weren't, they wouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, I, it's really that simple. You get into the point that, that we often make that, People are not passive recipients of these experiences of high strangeness. They participate in one way or another. They right. bring their own uh, preconceived notions and right, it's that, feelings. That say, yeah, it comes back to the yeah. idea of subjectivity of of the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. our our a general idea of the paranormal is whatever you bring to the experience is what you get out of it. So it's subjective and objective at the same time in in our experience. Ironically, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, how did you get to shift gears here a little? How did you get to know Whitley Strieber, who was uh, the one who introduced us, and uh, certainly one of the most famous experiencers of, of them all? And how has he influenced your thinking? Well, it's a long story. I, uh, you know, I <laughs> all stories are long, right? Mm. I'll I'll try to keep it short. I wrote a book in 2007 called Esla in America and the Religion of No Religion. And it was on the history of the American counterculture or the human potential movement. And when I was finishing up that book, the basic idea of the human potential movement is that there are these extraordinary capacities that are innate to human beings, but we haven't quite realized yet. They're, they're evolutionary buds, as it were, of our, of our future superhuman selves. And I realized as I was finishing that book that that's essentially the mythology of the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> and I I was sort of shocked. I was shocked by that. I was also humored by that. I grew up with the X-Men, by the way. I was born the year before, two years before they, they were created. Um, and I was like, wow, what is this relationship between these East Coast adolescent fantasies and this West Coast, these West Coast mystical traditions or spiritual traditions. And so I wanted to find out what the relationship between the mystical and, and science fiction was, essentially. And so I wrote this book called Mutants and Mystics, which is on the paranormal and science fiction. And Whitley is the, the focus of the last chapter in that book. Everybody kept telling me I had to read Communion. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I... Um, I finally read Communion, and I was like, oh, jeez, oh, my goodness. Um, this was a, a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. It's also a very reflective, critical book. And Whitley pretty much performs everything I wanted to do in Communion. And so I used him as a concluding chapter in that book, and that's how I got to know him. Uh, I met him through a, a, an editor we both shared, 
and uh, over the years we became quite close actually okay yeah he was our guest uh, two weeks ago and he may well be listening because he knew you were going to be on today and uh, the three of us have had some zoom based discussions that we yeah. hope to expand and uh, can certainly continue yeah now, in the book superhumanities you referred to altered states of knowledge that have driven the creative processes of many of our most revered authors, artists, and activists. Now, you've already mentioned this, but could you go a little deeper and give a few examples? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, to speak about the the past, I suppose, you know, somebody like Arthur Schopenhauer, whom people don't read anymore, but had a tremendous influence on German idealism, he talks explicitly about his precognitive dreams and his and related his thought to the the mystical philosophy of, of Hinduism. Uh, William James, who probably one of the greatest American philosophers and psychologists of all time, spent much of his life studying mediums and psychics and wrote extensively on his own psychical research. And by the way, also inhaled and ingested all kinds of psychedelic substances to to induce these same these same states um, the same is true of, of uh, critical race theory w.e.b. Du Bois a lot of his famous book the souls of black folk is is about altered states um, Gloria Anzaldúa and contemporary post-colonial theory again is very much about altered states and a kind of possession even kundalini experiences uh, psychoanalysis is the same way. It's, it's just filled with discussions of telepathy and and occultism and and otherness and the uncanny and it just goes on and on and on like that. Um, and my argument is that these dimensions are precisely what we're ignoring today. Um, we've turned everything into a two-dimensional or horizontal plane when in fact it's it's three-dimensional, if not four or five-dimensional. Hmm. That is that is actually a really a really interesting point, and and it's it's interesting that a lot of the major dis, the major disruptor now, at least in pop culture, right? You know, the idea of of artificial intelligence kind of be doing doing the experiencing and thinking for us. If I if I'm if I'm understanding at least the concept correctly, yeah, because, yeah, because it's because I I think it it, it does. You know, I I I unfortunately am a millennial. And so I, I I go on Instagram and I, I see all these jokes and it's it's like uh, there's there's one now where there's like a, a bunch of construction workers and they're all standing around a pit and there's like one like one guy in there like digging this huge hole and it has like this thing it has like little labels over them it's like the designer the programmer the marketer all of that and then it just has Chat GPT as the guy digging the hole and it's like I've I've even heard from friends like oh yeah I, I use it to do my work for me and it's like how are you enriching yourself. <laughs> It's 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 interesting that we're we're sort of coming up with ways around doing this and and experiencing what arguably is you know really an incredibly human experience. You know, uh, Paul, there's this famous line. I think it's from Yeats actually, where he says that education is not a filling up of a bucket; it's a lighting of of a fire. Mm. And those are the two models of education that I think are in tension today. I think most people think of education in purely transactional ways. It's just a filling up of a bucket with more and more data. Or in the case you cited, it's, it's just a computer pretending to be intelligent. Mm. 
Um, where what I'm really talking about with the superhumanities is lighting that fire. Mm. And you can't, I'm sorry, but a computer's never going to have an altered state of consciousness. It's, it's not going to receive a revelation. It's going to mimic things really well. It's going to trick you, but it's not itself going to be conscious. Mm. And I, so I'm extremely skeptical of the whole AI, um, you know, mess really that, that people are walking into because I think it presumes materialism. It presumes that consciousness is a product of brain. Uh, and therefore a computer can produce consciousness if it just gets sophisticated and, and, and detailed and organized enough. And I just don't think that's true. I think that's false. That's a very important point. Um, in, and the, the issue of, um, what we know and how we know it. The motto of this show, as you probably know, is everything you know is wrong. <laughs> right. you know, we include ourselves in that. That's yeah, true. Right. So uh, how do you know, and this gets into deep epistemology, I guess, uh, when I ran into Bigfoot on September 16, 2016, totally unexpectedly, in a Pennsylvania field, I saw it with my own eyes, and uh, then uh, Ben's mom called and scared it away, uh, which I closest I ever came to divorce. And, um, I mean, how do I know that that was a legitimate experience, it, despite the fact that I'd had, you know, 50 years of these sorts of things? And uh, how do we know what we think we know? Well, okay, so that's a deep question. First of all, I, I don't... The word that really sticks out to me that you used is legitimate. Um, you clearly have that experience, Paul. And so let's put that experience on our table as part of what appears to us. Um, I don't know if what was really there was Bigfoot, but I know you had that experience. And so that's where our inquiry should begin. In, in terms of knowing, you know, this is why I'm so drawn to the paranormal. Um, it's not because I know what it is. It's precisely because I don't know what it is. Mm. And if your real intellectuals should be most interested in what we don't know, not in what we know. If we know something, it's done. It's over. It's 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 controlled. If we don't know something, it's still in the future, and it's worth working toward. So this is why I think the paranormal is so fascinating, because it's precisely what we don't know. And anybody who says they know what it is, they're not... <laughs> They're either lying or they're grossly misinformed. Um, <laughs> so Phil so, and Savannah is correct. What? Phil and Savannah is correct. What did Phil say? Well, he's saying uh, the more we know, the more we don't know. Yeah. Well, but again, see, this is where, you know, to take us back to Nietzsche for a moment, um, he was extremely skeptical of what we know. Everything we know is just a function of language and culture and history. Mm. And so we actually don't know anything. Um, and I, and I think that's what the paranormal suggests. It's a kind of, it's a kind of thinking that is not languaged though. It's not in the terms of, of words or, or numbers. It's in the terms of myth and folklore and image and vision and story. Mm. And so it's trying to speak to us. It's trying to tell a story, but it's not doing it through reason or or through the left hemisphere if you will it's doing it through through the right hemisphere and i 
that's a metaphor. I don't want to be too literal about that, but I think there's really something there. I think to the extent we think everything needs to be rational and needs to be explained, I think we err in a very, very big way. The uh, idea of taking all this and putting it, as you say, back on the academic table table would seem to be sort of the uh, academic equivalent of D-Day. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, how do you plan to do this, and what do your colleagues think of all this? Okay, so that's that's good. So, first of all, the one of my first arguments is that, look, the people we read and revere today were in these altered states. So this is our stuff. Mm. Come on. It, this isn't this is putting it back on the table this isn't putting something on the table this is what created the table actually okay yeah, exactly that that's the first argument the second thing to, to answer your question is you know I was kind of the poster boy in the 90s for the harassed and threatened scholar of religion hmm. uh, my first book was banned or was attempted to be banned twice in India and Pretty much everybody in the academy who knew me knew that I was under serious threat and under and under global harassment for about six years. So I think when I do this stuff now, I think those people are, I'm guessing, but I think they are like, okay, Jeff's, um, he's a serious guy. He stood up to all that. We're just, he's got street cred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're we're going to let him do this. But I, also think it's more than that. I truly believe that historians and philosophers and scientists are fascinated by this material. They know it's real in the sense that it happens. They don't know what to do with it. They don't want to sound like the tabloids, so they themselves don't want to step out. They're in the closet, but someone who's out of the closet and who's talking about it in a way that they can understand and accept, they really appreciate. And so the general response I've gotten from professional intellectuals and scientists is appreciation. It is not pushback. Um, so, and you know, I I work, I'm, I just, I founded something called Archives of the Impossible. It's an actual physical archive at Rice University with, with close to a million, probably over a million documents right now. It's it's a serious archival project that will have influence and impact on generations of scholars. And so I'm trying to build something that will last, certainly past my own retirement and death, and, 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 and hopefully over many, 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 many generations, which is how knowledge is built, by the way. It's not built by a person or in a day. It's built by institutions over many, many generations. That's very noble. Uh, I'm thinking of a quote from Max Planck, uh, the great physicist, who said that uh, new ideas do not come in because people uh, uh, <laughs> accept them, but the old people, the old ideas die, and all that's left is the new people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a paraphrase, but uh, or what, uh, stay, yeah, I think what he minute. said is, I think what he said is, truth advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, here's another question. This is uh, something completely different. From um, uh, that's for Peter. Yeah, Peter Shelley in Bogota, Colombia. And now for something completely different. Um, and Peter writes to us: uh, Can you please share the specific details of what you learned about the alleged alien abduction of uh, Carrie Mullis and other people on his property? 
Um, that it it actually happened. Um, I sat down with Carrie for two or three days in Petaluma, California, and Carrie told me, well, he told me the story that he tells in his autobiography. He wrote an autobiography called Dancing Naked in the Minefield, and he has a chapter in there called No Aliens Allowed. And essentially, the story he tells is that he went up to his cabin in Northern California. He got there late at night. He had to pee. So he got his flashlight in his cabin, and he walked down to the uh, the outhouse. And on the way to the outhouse, there was a glowing raccoon that said to him, Good evening, doctor. And that was the last thing he remembered. Uh, and six hours later, he found himself walking down a road towards the same cabin and then found that he could not go into that part of the of the woods anymore. He was terrified. What I learned from Carrie that's not in the book is that um, his daughter had had the same kinds of experiences on the same property and had not told her dad until Whitley's communion came out and she had called her dad to encourage him to read this book. And so Carrie was shocked that that his own daughter and himself had had basically the same kind of experience on the same property and did had not told each other but could could meet through through this book that just came out um, so that's that's what Carrie Carrie told me and I mean he was just sitting there for with his with his wife he was quite ill at that point by the way um, and when he wrote his autobiography he was retired. And this is a pattern I've seen among scientists in particular. Many of them have had these experiences, but they won't talk about them until they retire because they're worried about reputation and grants and, and that exactly, kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. Um, so I, I think that's really significant, frankly. Um, I think it speaks to the politics of knowledge in the academy. It also explains why you're talking to a professor of religion and not a physicist. <laughs> We've talked uh, a lot of physicists. But uh, well, this point, I I don't have any authority. I have no reputation, Paul. Um, well, you do with I, us. Well, with you maybe, but well, thank you. But I assure you, the study of religion is not high on the the academic uh, uh, ladder of, of prestige. Hmm. True. Well, at this point, let's take our mid-show break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on W O O N twelve forty a.m. 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, Professor Jeffrey Kripal. So stick with us. Casey Kasem has unlocked the American Top 40 vaults and is replaying original shows from the 80s. This week, Casey takes you back to March 28, 1981. That's when Sheena Easton boarded the morning train. Cliff Richard was a little in love. Smokey Robinson enjoyed being with you. And Dolly Parton was working 9 to 5. You'll hear those songs, all the top 40 hits, and the long-distance dedications from March 28, 1981, right here on American Top 40, The 80s. You can depend on us for public service, Owen Radio. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on WON AM and FM. And we're back with our guest, uh, Professor Jeffrey Kripal. And uh, we are going to continue our uh, 
wide-ranging and rather profound discussion here. Our line of inquiry, yes. if you will. Now, you can see, uh, Jeff, that um, uh, on this station, uh, the laws of physics are suspended, and we have the, the late Casey Kasem uh, follows our show. So he's still with us on WON. Uh, anyway, um, one of the past issues that, that I faced in the late 70s when I began suspecting that it's more about physics than dead people when it comes to the ghostly phenomena was that uh, a lot of physicists, academic physicists, you know, institutions around here like Brown University, et cetera, wouldn't talk to me, all right? Uh, a few would, but they said, you know, don't quote me, that kind of thing, because I was already a journalist. Uh, so I, I just really think that um, the materialism, and you've already mentioned that, uh, which is enshrined, in the scientific method, probably isn't good enough to start explaining the paranormal, even to start exploring it, let alone defining anything. What is your opinion on it? Does the scientific method have to change? And if it does, will all hell break loose academically? Well, okay, so this is where I take a position that's rather contrary. I, I actually don't think the scientific method is capable here. Mm-hmm. I, I, nor is it, nor is it even, um, well, certainly not adequate. It's not even appropriate. And what I mean by that is, so I, I spent years sitting around conferences listening to scientists talk about the paranormal or the parapsychological, and they were always looking for hidden causes or explanations. They were looking for something physical. And I was always the humanist in the corner saying, well, what if there is no cause? What if there is no physical mechanism? What if this is about meaning and story and and myth? What what then? You know, maybe your methods you're using are the exact wrong methods to figure out what's going on here. And this is why I'm such a proponent of the humanities because meaning and story and and myth and folklore are exactly what we're good at talking about and thinking about. And that's what I think the paranormal is really about. Mm. I think it's about meaning-making and creating a new story. I don't think the stories that our ancestors lived in are working so well anymore. I think they're getting pretty creaky and clunky. And I think human beings are desperately hungering for a better story, one that can certainly take in the science and make sense of it, but is not limited to it and, 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 and can understand themselves in a bigger cosmos and in a, in a much bigger way. Um, you, you know, one of the jokes I tell, Paul, is that using science to study the paranormal is like going to the North Pole to look for zebras. <laughs> um, if you do that, you can do that but you're not going to find any zebras. And if you conclude that there are no zebras, you are deeply mistaken because you went looking in the wrong place for what you were looking for. And I think that's exactly what the scientific method is doing. And on a deeper level, this will get very philosophical, but I also think paranormal events are about subjectivity and objectivity breaking down. Mm-hmm. and about realizing some kind of third middle space that is neither subjective nor objective. 
And I think the scientific method requires us to split that into a subject and an object. And as, as we all know, science does not like subjectivity. Mm. It likes it likes objectivity. It wants to it, it can study things and it's very successful as long as physical things behave in three dimensional space. Yeah. But but as soon as you, you start talking about the subjective element, uh, as you said, all hell breaks loose. And all that means is it's no longer science. No, I, I tend to agree. I, I always found um, I, I, I've received well, we have received many compliments. Oh, they look at the paranormal in such a scientific way, and I am all, I always cringe at that because mm. I, as much as I am skeptical, I, I I it gets sort of translated into scientific, and that's not really it. Really, it's more of an existential thing. Yeah. It, and and so it's it's understanding that I think people tend to focus on the phenomena rather than the people in it, and I I also tend tend to agree that really it is a, is a part of a story because all of these these same themes have recurred throughout human history, and yeah. you know you can even look at some of the cryptids that are running around right you know you have upright canine cryptids and you know people will call them werewolves right yeah. or yeah. even you know if you want to get even more granular with it you could refer to you know Bigfoot as you know the Mesopotamian god Enkidu, right? And then, and even in that in that same realm, it's all these experiences that we've just had continuously throughout yep. human history, and the the patterns just continue. This this is why the study of religion and folklore is so important. Ben is when you know that history, you know that none of this stuff is new, um, and you can locate and contextualize the modern experiences in this deeper history. And that makes them more real, not less real. Mm. No, truly. So I guess the question, the follow-up to that would be, what is this new story for us to participate in? Um, this might disappoint you, but I don't know. Um, if I knew what that story was, I would tell it. Mm. Um, but I think what's happening is that let me put it this way. How, how can I put this? I would say the most common thing that experiencers tell to me when they explain what happened to them, they'll say something like, it was as if I were in a movie. I was I was a, an actor in a movie. Or it was as if I were a character in a novel. Hmm. And to which I always reply, you are. And I think what's happening, you know, culture and, and the self are essentially stories we tell ourselves. We are characters in movies and novels that other people have written. And I think what a paranormal experience is, is we're waking up to that fact and we're realizing, I don't want to be in that story anymore. I don't want to be in that novel or that movie. I want to, I want to be in a different novel or a movie. I want to tell something else. And I, I think there are probably many new stories, Ben, that can be told. And I don't want to presume that I know what those are because I don't. But I do know, and this is, goes back to the science, this is something very positive about science, I think those new stories that we tell will involve science. They'll involve things like evolutionary biology and cosmology and quantum mechanics and things like that, all of which are new, you know, all of which are the last 150 years old, or 150, 200 years or so, um, and none of which our, our ancestors knew about. Um, so that I think those will become key features. That's what I call the super story, and that's what I mean by new realities in the subtitle of the, the book that, that Paul mentioned. 
Um, I think the sciences will be part of this new story we tell, but I don't know what that story will look like. All right, let's take a moment and uh, please tell us about your website, your books, where people can get them and where they can find out more. Yeah, so thank you. I Just go to jeffreyjkripel.com and you can see all the books. and You know, you can get them on any any website as well. Also, please know we're doing a big conference this May called Archives of the Impossible, and you can go to the website impossiblearchives.org and you can sign up for the, the conference either digitally or in person. Um, and I think if you go to those two sites, you'll, you, you'll get more of me than you want to get. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, now, as an illustration from my own library of anecdotes uh, for your uh, point about the scientific method, uh, I knew the Rhines, Joseph and Louisa yeah. Rhine. I knew Louisa a lot better. And they were, the, of course, at Duke University and the founders beginning in the 1930s of uh, modern parapsychology. Yeah. And in all my discussions with Louisa, it was like, yeah, she was more interested in ESP and children and all this sort of thing. And uh, she, they were determined to make what to me uh, was like square pegs to fit round holes. Yeah. They were trying, and I said, what if this is outside of science? Yeah. You know, because in our opinion, the, today's paranormal is tomorrow's science. Yeah, it hasn't been discovered yet, but uh, they kept trying to do that. And they, they, they were brilliant pioneers and amazing people, but uh, they just uh, couldn't get past the scientific method. Yeah, at least I, as long as I dealt with them. Yeah, you know, you probably know the word paranormal was originally French, paranormal, yes. and it was coined in 1903, and it had this same kind of what I would call promissory materialism to it. Um, it didn't mean supernatural, one word. It meant supernatural, two words. It meant something that was entirely natural and that we couldn't explain with our present science, but presumably we could explain and understand with future science. I I don't know about that. I, I'm suspicious of that promissory materialism. Mm. I think what, what we're going to need is a worldview that recognizes that the material or physical world is just one world uh, and that there are other other aspects of reality that are just not physical. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I do I do believe dualism is definitely what's been kind of shooting us in the foot, preferably. Um, yeah, we're, we're no big fans of Descartes. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so here's here's sort of a, a little... little a little anecdote. No, I guess it is an anecdote. I, I was listening to a lecture a while ago, and there, it was on the idea of phenomenology and how we sort of order our reality around us. Yeah. And there's essentially four ways in which we do it: through through language, art, music, and then ritual. And, and through this, we sort of interpret the world around us and, and sort of order it in a way that we sort of subjectively experience it. Yeah. So, I mean, English is a garbage language for talking about any of this stuff, because it, in my opinion, anyway. Only because it's it's so limited in its capacity, and and there there it's you know you like you look at like Greek, right? You know Greek, the, every word has like multiple meanings and usually like multiple senses in which they exist. You know, like the idea of compassion was also your spleen, but it also functioned as a way in which you you showed compassion upon other people, having this sort of spiritual side to a physical thing. Now, with all this said, 
you you've talked about materialism in a sense that is I want to say derogatory, but in in a sense that's kind of it's not it's not good enough. What what is your relationship with your work and sort of scientific materialism? So, um, I I am critical of sci- of materialism if it's reductive and if it's exclusionary. In other words, if the argument is that all there is is matter and that all things, including consciousness, are products or 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 emergent properties of matter. I think that's fundamentally wrong and mistaken. I also think it's fundamentally depressing and yeah. nihilistic. And nihilistic. Um, and so I'm ex- I'm very much against that. Now that does not mean I'm against matter or I'm against the scientific method. Mm. Of course, I inhabit a material body and I live in a material world, and it operates by particular principles or laws that science is very good at, at describing and tracing and manipulating. But that doesn't mean that's all there is. And what I do know is that my scientific colleagues can explain almost anything except us. <laughs> and that's a pretty big hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, in the picture. Uh, and it happens to be the hole I inhabit. Um, so I'm just like, whoa, that's that's a problem. Um and, and so I just want to, you know, I'm trying to point that out with a lot of other people. I mean, my goodness, I'm hardly, I'm just a little voice here. There's a lot of people who see the problems with reductive materialism. Mm. Um, and I think the paranormal is, is just, I think it's a very dramatic instance of when that doesn't work. Um, yeah. I'll give you an example, if I can. Uh, ben, you and I talked earlier about mythology and folklore. Um there's a man named James Gallant who wrote this beautiful little essay called The Humiliating UFOs. Mm. And what James points out is that these stories look a lot like ancient Greek mythology. And that the reason they're humiliating is because they're neither subjective nor objective. They seem to require some kind of multiple multiverse or multiple reality that things and beings come in and out of. And this is just humiliating to us because we're not set up to understand such a reality. But the ancient Greeks could through through their myth and their religion, but we no longer can through our secularism and material science. And so the UFOs just humiliate us. They just make a mockery of of our assumptions. Um, and I just I just think I just think James is right about that. Yeah. What paranormal experiences have you had? So, I'm a lot like Charles Taylor. I'm very buffered. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone uh, has their stories. Yeah, I do have stories, though. I I had a, a major out-of-body experience and a kundalini-like event in India in the fall of 1989, and it involved some kind of energetic presence, an out-of-body experience, and a kind of cognitive download, as, as I would put it today. Um, and it made me very sympathetic to people's experiences, Paul. Um, when someone describes a, a, an alien abduction or a near-death experience, <laughs> my ears perk up, and I, you know, I say to myself, "Yeah, that can happen," um, because it happened to me. 
and I can't deny that. It's just a, it's just a, a confession. It's not, it's not a claim, a knowledge or anything. Mm. Well, it, it seems to be a, a part of the of the human experience in and of itself, right? I mean, any major life event on my end, personally. It's always been bookended by some sort of quote unquote spiritual experience in a sense. Right. And, you know, any sort of major change, it's almost like it's kind of required as part of the human experience. Well, unless you're really buffered, Ben. That's a good point. Right? I mean, there are people who never have these experiences, and I, I, I want to honor that too. And I think any, any theory of the paranormal we develop has to explain why some people never experience it. Mm-hmm. And why some people always experience it, and you know this goes back to Paul's question. I mean, my real my real set of experiences are the experiences of other people. Um, I mean, if you're around Whitley Strieber enough, um, things happen. <laughs> that, True. That man that man is is radioactive. Yeah. Um, and. I also know a woman named Elizabeth Crone, I, whom I wrote a book with, and Elizabeth was struck by lightning in 1988 and had a near-death experience and a series of paranormal capacities then developed after that. And Elizabeth is just not like the rest of us. Um, and I and I say that with affection and admiration. And so I think this idea that we're all the same is just complete nonsense. Mm, it's true. Uh, one of the major impediments, uh, at least in our work, has been what we refer to as the island theory. And as you know, uh, much like yourself in many circumstances, we've had to sort of coin a new vocabulary for some of the concepts that we deal with. And uh, we seem to uh, have one that's known as the island theory, whereas the, the, uh, it's an overwhelming assumption seemingly from uh, our own education, that we are islands, that, that everything within us, our consciousness, etc., is contained within the physical body. That's why people have such trouble or had in believing in uh, extrasensory perception, etc., uh, something the Rhines were trying to uh, get around. So I think that uh, perhaps a, a revolution on our own thinking individually in what we call multiverse awareness would uh, benefit uh, what you're trying to do, getting things back on the table and into the discussion of academics. Yeah, and I think uh, first of all, we're not islands. I mean, that's I mean that's that's kind of lesson number one of the humanities is that mm. human beings are relational and constructed by language and other social and cultural practices. But, you know, another thing that's really important here is emotion and, and connection and the awareness that a lot of the words we use, like telepathy, were coined to mean pathos at a distance. Hmm. It wasn't about playing the stock market. It was about loved ones dying or being sick or ill or in danger. And so this role of emotion, um, I think, is like, really, really important. And it gets to this island theory that you... Which I think the island theory, of course, is just wrong. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, every island is floating in the same sea or ocean. So, you know, the, the, I guess the metaphor can be extended. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I, I think that's kind of, And that's the hurdle in Western culture because we live in such an individualistic culture 
and the notion of freedom and rights is so ingrained in us, and so many of these experiences violate that. Um, abduction experiences, for example, often could care less about human agency. Mm. There was a when I was in college, uh, I went to Emerson University. There was a lot of actually I don't actually I don't know if it's an if it's a university now, but at the well, time it was Emerson College. Or not. It was at the well actually they do now hmm. they're now Emerson University, but at the time they were Emerson College. So I, I went there and I took a seminar and it was on religion and globalization, and it was taught by uh, this woman named uh, Talasi Srivas who worked for the UN for a very long time, and her whole her whole shtick was. Um, being sort of a cultural liaison and and kind of interacting with all these different cultures, whatever. And she taught this whole very very interesting seminar. And she said one of the most interesting things that tells you a lot about a culture is food. Yeah. And and you learn a lot about a culture uh, based on on how they take their meals and, and what kind of food they eat. And she pointed out that the American culture, with the way that we we take our meals, is so individualistic. And it's it's very much separated from other people. And one of these really interesting concepts, I was actually <clears throat> listening to something really recently that was talking about the idea of, of relationship in ancient cultures. That that relationship, especially with something divine, right, was kind of like concrete, something you needed to have, and it connected you to other people. And and in this instance, you know, we the the culture that we kind of have built for ourselves, especially over the last couple of decades, has has become so isolated, right? You know, COVID was kind of like the the great sort of unveiling of yeah. this because it it shows like how how isolated we truly were. But it, it, in this sense, you know, the idea of having a of relationship seems to be kind of key, at least in in the paranormal sense as well, because you're kind of having a relationship experience even with the event that's happening, or or the entity that we're that you're you're experiencing at this moment, you know what I mean? Well, this is, I mean, this is the big idea I got from your book, Paul. At the end, there was that, you know, even possession implies unity. Yeah. Mm. I mean, nothing can possess you that you don't share something profound with, and. So I, you know, that's a big one for me. And that comes from other people, too. I mean, other folks have said that. But you said it in a very blunt and particular way in in, in your most recent book that, that I found very convincing. You know, and I've, 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 I took away that for sure. Okay. What's next for you in your work? Uh, what's next? Um... So I'm working on a book called How to Think Impossibly, and it's really a follow-up to the superhumanities, and it's really a kind of how, how do we do this. It's a kind of how-to manual, and how do we go about putting the impossible back on the table again? What's it require? What kind of skill sets do you need to do this? It, it's really a, a how-to. Um, and then, of course, these, these archives of the impossible, these conferences that we're doing at Rice, I mean, it's a lot of work, Paul. Oh, um, yes. And... Um, you're talking about hundreds of people present and thousands of people online, and that's a lot of food. <laughs> it's a lot of hotel rooms. It's a, it's 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 complicated. So I, you know, I just I want to work to to bring people together and realize that you're not alone. Um, you're not an island. To use your earlier language, that we're all kind of doing this together, and and let's go do it. I like that. Just in our last few minutes, unless Ben, you have another. 
uh, nothing short, so please. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned in your writings moral objections to the superhumanities. Yeah. Can you just explain that for a few minutes? Yeah, I mean, so intellectuals are generally very allergic to any form of transcendence. And by transcendence, I mean something beyond or above the human. And the reason they're allergic to it is for very good reasons, that transcendence has been used for very bad things, to beat up and exclude other people. And religions have a horrible track record here as well, of excluding people and claiming some kind of absolute authority and so to the extent that paranormal phenomena link up with religion, and they do, um, these sort of moral objections come in. Um, and, you know, uh, Ben's earlier comment about Nietzsche, Nietzsche's another perfect example. Nietzsche's Ubermensch was employed by the Nazis in, in the 20th century, but Nietzsche himself would have hated the Nazis. So... That's the kind of moral objection you get. Any 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 invocation of the paranormal or of the occult in the academy, at least, immediately brings up the charge of fascism and authoritarianism and <laughs> violence. Sure. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for a very stimulating show. You can hang out if you like. We can chat at the end. But we're going to go into our announcements right now. And Ben, if you would uh, take us to take it away. Sure thing. And a, a quick correction for myself. Apparently, it is Emerson College still. They were playing with the idea of university, and I remember everyone being very, being very upset about that because <laughs> because all of our all of our merch and stuff would have been moot. But no, it is still a college, so I apologize. And uh, several events for this spring have been canceled, unfortunately. But you can look for us at the Exeter UFO Festival in September, and for my dad at the Arizona Dowsers Conference in October. Uh, visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 1,200 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON AM and FM. Also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast apps and platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And you can download our show app. Uh, there's uh, not much going on on there, but it is free uh, BehindTheParanormal.com. You can browse our books on our website as well, along with our uh, guest co-hosts at our, our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us. Yes, the um, app actually will uh, keep you abreast of the shows as they are posted in recorded form. And just a little bit here, we, we have... Uh, Greetings from New Hampshire. This is from Michelle, a good friend of ours. I love the show. Dr. Kreipel is indeed an interesting fellow. I <laughs> wish your show was a couple of hours longer today. Well, so do we. Please tell Ben I said hello and hope you both have a gentle week. Well, hello. Thank you, Michelle. Okay, very good. So uh, what do we have next week, Ben? Well, uh, we have on the docket uh, something just is interesting. So on April 2nd, uh, we welcome Dr. Robert Temple, a UK-based professor and researcher who believes that plasma-based life forms, try saying that five times fast, are the basis of many paranormal experiences. He's an interesting chap. He uh, lives in England, but he's from Kentucky. So yeah, again, again, we're aiming so that you can get college credit for listening to our show. Right. Uh, we leave you today with a thought from, of all, wait a minute. We, this is the one from last week. 
Uh, I can say it again twice. El Frank Baum. No, let's go to Renaissance astronomer and mathematician Copernicus, who was also a Roman Catholic clergyman. A lot of people don't realize that. Quote, to know that we know what we know and to know that we do not know what we do not know, that is true knowledge. Unquote. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.